And if they're at all happy where they are and what they've become, from selling out to doubling down, let's talk punk rock business and what happens when the two get all mixed up. Here's your host, Bill Florio. Hey, this is Bill Florio. Yo, this is MC Charlie Boswell. Hey, it's Dave Harrison. Today's guest is Bobby Sullivan, famous for Soulside, and he is the gen- not the general manager. He's like the CEO of the a soul food store. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I don't think they use CEO. I think he. I think he is the general. Yeah, he's a general manager of French Broad. It's called French Broad. He might be chairman of the board. He said general manager. That's true. No one's no one's chairman of the board anymore. That's like a monopoly. That was big term. in like the sixties. Let's just call him chairman. It's like like Mr. Drummond. And what is a community chest? <laughs> I thought that was a great conversation. I thought Bill and I both read Bobby's book beforehand, and it was a good read. It talks about Rastas and history and a little bit about his life, and we dove into a lot about co-ops and, and uh, prison reform, and it, it sounds a lot heavier than it actually um, was. I thought it was a really good I conversation. <laughs> I, 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 wanted, I didn't get to ask the question I wanted to, which was how many books Bill's read about Jimmy Hoffa? I think only two. Get out of here. I don't. They play two in a week. Well, maybe I got I to gotta bone up on Jimmy Hoffa. I have read... I did read, I think, six or seven books about pirates this year. And you read freaking, what, 25 books about the Zodiac Killer? <laughs> no, only one. I only, I only read the, the same one four times. <laughs> I was surprised that, that, that the Teamsters came up and we didn't uh, pounce on that like I would have expected us to. <laughs> I was not expecting Teamsters to come up in a food co-op conversation. It makes you wonder about these food co-ops, doesn't it? The team, well, the teamsters that work for the food co-op must be like when the Revenge of the Nerds join that frat. <laughs> they're like the outcasts because they're the only white kids in the in the black frat. That must be like the teamsters. Maybe this food co-op, co-op is some kind of mafia scam. Did you ever think of that? <laughs> hey, they'll take the money. I mean, there's definitely there's definitely organizational things I did not know about in food co-ops. I learned a lot because the, like the, protection. The, yeah, I, I mean, he's. I mean, the other thing is, you know, we talked about him going into Eastern Europe and. He had a, you know, Soulside had to bribe their way, you know, out of the Iron Curtain, you know. So I think I think there's a lot of punk rock skills here that he's not even thinking of. Because punk rock's all about bribing. We don't know if his dad was calling ahead and being like, "Let him through, let that van through, don't give him any problems." Yeah, I did not expect the CIA and the Teamsters to come into this conversation. I think for so. a non-music podcast, we broke some new music history ground there. So I'm just saying. I think that that might be something that uh, that is worth talking about. Now I'm interested in the DC scene. There were so many people working for the government. I wonder how many were recruiting. <laughs> I, I think we got to look at those Discord records and uh, carefully at the lyrics because you know we don't know who, what kind of agents and what's the other word. Yeah, there's, there's there's there could be double agents in there. What is filler all about? You, you know, you know, Dave Grohl's parents were Jimmy Carter speechwriters, which is why his music's so boring. <laughs> 
You've been holding on to that one for a while. Honest you? to God, that was inspired right now. There we go. Okay, there's a lot here to, to explore in the future. Let's roll the tape. I thought we talked about health food stores. <laughs> All right, Bobby, we usually start this out by you introducing yourself and what you do for a living. Okay. Well, hello, my name is Bobby Sullivan, and for a living, I run a food co-op in Asheville, North Carolina. Awesome. Um, just as a disclaimer, Dave and I read your book, Revolutionary Threads. There's not that much information about food, <laughs> but but that that's good because we have a lot of things to fill in. I could just start us up. Like I like how you explained in the intro. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. It said, I grew up making music in the punk scene in Washington, D.C., which is centered around Discord Records and the do-it-yourself DIY culture. I have an international perspective because the city that raised me is a global hub. I have worked for food co-ops for most of my life, and this enables me to continue moving towards the goals I aspired to early on, promoting cultural tolerance and equitable relationships in an effort to simply get people to work and do it together for the benefit of all. So I was told you feel strongly about food justice. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, food became a focus because I had a healing crisis um, after the last Soulside tour from the 80s. We, we were on tour for about six months and I got an autoimmune disease and learned how food can really be your medicine. But I'd also been involved with Food Not Bombs. And so, yeah, food was sort of connecting the dots through a bunch of my worlds. And then it became my occupation. Cool. So is there a separation between food justice and food access? Or are those kind of the same type of idea? I think they're the same idea. I mean, both are pretty nebulous. You know, it's kind of like gentrification. You know, what do you do about it? I had a problem with that food access with the gentrification myself. Because, <laughs> you know, you used to be able to go into any deli and get a chocolate cow. I think I know where you're going with this, Charlie. <laughs> and then all these yuppies started gentrifying in the 80s and they had this Perrier and this soybean drink and all this crap. And you couldn't get a chocolate cow anywhere except like maybe from a hot dog vendor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that's a good that's a good uh, metaphor. <laughs> that, that, that wasn't a metaphor. <laughs> but I mean, you know, like like but, but chocolate cow was like the little guy, right? And you who took him over. Listen, Chocolate Cow was much better than you who. There's no comparison. <laughs> I don't even know what Chocolate Cow is. Cool. I was a chocolate champion in my day. So, okay. I think I think Dave and I both want to know a lot about food co-ops. Uh, where neither of us are members. And, you know, just I think if we could just start small, like what's the difference between a food co-op and like a more traditional? You have to have a membership? Yeah. Like, is it more than a membership? Is it more than just a membership? Is it like Amazon Prime? Right. Or is, is it, it like, like Amazon Prime? Or is it like, uh, what do you call it? Like, I mean, you could have a membership to REI. You know, is, is that the same thing as a food co-op? You know what, or is, you, you, know what you can't have a membership anymore? Blockbuster video. That's right. True. Very <laughs> true. true. <laughs> and that's because of gentrification, too. <laughs> it could be. All these people with their newfangled streaming crap. You know, us people with VHS. All right, let's take a step back. Let's, 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 let's talk about food like, co-op. One at a time. Let's, let's talk about... Um, Bobby, can you explain to us a little bit about how... Um, how food co-ops work, um, just, you know, for someone who doesn't, is not a member and doesn't understand what makes that different than your local Whole Foods, for instance. Yeah, no, it's a great question because all the loyalty programs at all the stores have really confused people as to what a co-op is all about. Because we ask the question every day at the register for just about every customer, hey, are you a member? But we use the term owner mostly because that's more 
telling about what it is. And so you don't have to be a member to shop at co-ops, although there's probably some out there that you do. And there is a difference between worker co-ops and consumer co-ops. And I've worked for both. And the difference is that in a worker co-op, the workers are the owners. In a consumer co-op, the consumers are owners. And so you buy in at hopefully a very low cost. And what that does is it enables you to be on the board of directors, to vote for the board of directors, and influence the uh, how the business runs in that way. So in other words, most of us run on something called policy governance. So in Asheville, where I live and work, we have about almost 3,000 local people that own the co-op, and they basically guide how we operate through the policies and the bylaws. Like we just made a change to the bylaws to get all the gender specific pronouns out of there. How does that work in terms of you have so many voices involved? How do you, is it, is it a straight vote? Are there, there's a, obviously um, some kind of board of directors, correct? That, that, that kind of helps decide what issues to bring, to bring up and how to, how to, how to address them. How does that work if you have that many, you know, have, have that many owners? So they've, co-ops have really honed in on this over the decades because Um, It's pretty easy for a rogue board to just destroy a co-op. And that's where policy governance comes in. And so as the general manager, I'm the sole employee of the board of directors. And then everybody else at the co-op works for me. So we do have hierarchy, right? But it makes it so that the board of directors can't walk in the store and start ordering people around. Got it. Does it feel very different as an own, you know, one of the owners, the 3000 owners, than basically walking with my feet and buying, you know, kind of regular supply and demand, right? Like, is it more of a feeling or is there a real piece there that they can actually like pick up and see like uh, written down as far as like their, their voice and their vote? I think the best example I could come up with for this one, because it it would be easy to just walk into a co-op and feel like it's no different than any other health food store or grocery store. Here's where I think the difference is the most significant is that, well, there's a few ways. We have five different bottom lines. So financial health is just one of them. Staff environment, education, growing the community, all those are uh, bottom lines that get measured by the board. So a normal corporation like Whole Foods, the CEO or the head is legally bound to generate profits. In a co-op, it's very different. Profit is, of course, important for the future, but so is the staff environment, for instance. I think it's more freeing in that way, and it allows someone or or all of us that work there to focus on different things that are important to us. Um, And so, in other words, it's even possible to lose money one year, but hey, we gave everybody living wage, and the board's like, hooray! Um, Here's an example where I think it's the most significant. So we had a local chain called, a local store called Green Life which uh, was a competitor to Earth Fair and was very, very, um, it was a privately owned company, but it was viewed as a community asset. So the workers were all well-known Asheville people because uh, they'd worked for Earth Fair. They knew the customers. Everybody knew each other's names. It really felt like a community center. And then guess what? They sold out to Whole Foods one day. You know, So it's like the, the capitalist model in the U.S., like we really honor entrepreneurialism, but the model is set up to sell out. And then what happens is people still think of that company as this homespun thing that they love. But it's not that at all anymore. At the co-op, here's the difference. So we happen to own 
1.5 acres in downtown Asheville, which is, you know, this national, at least national destination, tourist destination. We're seeing um, the cost of living go up dramatically, buildings propping up everywhere. And here is an actual community asset. It's actually owned by the community. So I can't just decide one day, you know what, I'm getting tired of this. I'm just going to sell it. <laughs> you know, those, those 3,000 people would have to vote to do that. So how does a co-op thrive in a city like Asheville where there are so many, I wouldn't say it's food saturated because I know there are parts that don't have easy access to food, but for the most part, you know, you can buy organic pretty easily at a corporate store as easily as you can at the co-op. How do you differentiate? Is it, is it, is there a public outreach component to what you do that really gets the word out about the difference between the co-op and, you know, Earth Fair or the, the local Whole Foods? We're never doing a good enough job at doing that. And so I think that the way that we actually differentiate is over time, the corporations that um, got into this game, they are dumbing down their staff by having pretty poor employment practices. So people are, the staff is turning over pretty regularly. But what we offer is a, is a real community experience where you actually can come in and you can, you can get, you know, you can ask about something and get a real answer. Um, you know, in the case of like Dave's sister, you know, we have people coming in where they are, you know, oh, they just got married or they just got a partner and oh, she's pregnant. <laughs> and then, oh, you know, then the kids walking through the store and then the next kid. And we're actually like seeing these families um, grow and then we're hiring their kids now. To that, to that point, though, I mean, I know even in just since... Since my sister moved to Asheville the first time I went to visit, between then and now, the city has changed so much. Do you see that as having positive effect on the co-op or do you think that you know the changing demographics of, of the city are... I think it's a problem. And, and I, I think that because we are downtown. And so downtown used to be a place where we would run into locals all the time. Anywhere you went, you'd run into people that you, you knew. Now it's just like a sea of white tourist faces. But as the community changes, the co-op is going to change with the community, right? So is there a point where it just, you know, you're not you're not living in the right place, right? It's not the co-op's fault, right? If that's the if if you know, it's the people that build the co-op, right? Yeah, I mean, I think for for us that makes us cuz we're expanding right now and we're only 4,000 square feet of retail, which is tiny for a grocery store. If we were a big big grocery store, I I don't think we could sustain it in that downtown location. It wouldn't make sense. But what's cool is that co-ops are more adaptable than corporate businesses because staff participate more in decision-making and innovation. And so anybody on the staff can have an idea that actually comes to fruition and they, they can guide the process to make that happen. So COVID is a perfect example of this insane thing happening that none of us had ever experienced before. And we turned out to be the first store to really react in a way that um, was real, that created a safe environment for people to shop in. Right. So you you're, you feel like you're more directly connected to the customers and you can, and you can really like serve them a lot faster than some corporate chain, right? Or even like a mom and pop. Yeah, because we have, that's where the many voices come in handy. Because like my, my analogy for what happened during COVID, because I've been doing research for uh, 
my next book, and I've been reading a, a lot, some of a, about pirates, and I actually, I didn't know that piracy was like a bastion of democracy during the colonial age, that they actually were pretty democratic. And um, so I feel like the co-op kind of turned into a pirate ship during COVID because we just, we, you know, we all thought we were going to die doing this work. And we would have uh, councils basically every day figuring out, okay, what's the next step? What do we do now? You know, how do you feel about this? Do you feel safe doing this? Okay, let's limit it to 10 customers at a time. Now, are we going to require gloves and hand sanitizer? Like, what's next? Plexiglass? Okay, yeah, let's do that. I, I think you should talk a little bit more. I've read seven books about pirates this year. I, I think you should explain a little. Yes, I think you should read. <laughs> you should explain a little bit more about the pirate culture because I think people expect you know a violent outcome. Yeah, and Bobby, you did you did touch upon this a little bit about the Somali pirates in in uh, Revolutionary Threads too, and I thought that was really fascinating about a different look at what drives you know what drives that to be necessary in the first place, but also yeah, the true. De- democratic elements of uh, everyone has, you know, one one person, one vote. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was surprised to learn that, you know, the captain could be deposed pretty easily on a pirate ship and that the captain also didn't earn, like, I think the captain earned twice as much as the normal crew member uh, as far as the spoils were concerned, which is a pretty good ratio. <laughs> Considering CEOs now, though, I mean, I mean, who are earning, you know, 25 to 40 times what their average worker is. I mean, that's not actually that sweet compared to what corporations are doing. These yeah, times. exactly. <laughs> They've written a lot about uh, Native peoples, too. And some of the indigenous peoples have similar kinds of structures, right? And I just wonder if that, yeah, I wanted, I wanted, just didn't want to jump right into Rastafarianism, but are there kinds of like parallels between Rastafarianism and these kinds of cultures and how do they work with a food co-op idea? The, the biggest thing in common is the decentralized nature of it all. And I don't want to glorify it too much because like I said, we have hierarchy and, you know, charisma is something that gives somebody power in a group setting. It's not just status or position. But yeah, I think the decentralized nature of all the things that you just mentioned make them have certain things in common. Like very much like the punk rock world where, you know, you're playing in a band, but the show is not just all about the lead singer and how beautiful that person is. I don't know. You know about it, that. It, it, <laughs> Maybe I'm more just more beautiful. Okay. Okay, got it. <laughs> so is so is Bobby. So you guys yeah, are on the same the, page. Could be the same. <laughs> But to make a scene like that happen, you know, it is about the photographers. It's about the journalists. It's about the artists for the album covers. You know, people are collaborating on something that they're really not making money on. It's 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 about the belief system and it's about having a good life on a day to day basis where you are listened to and um, and and you do some listening. So how much when when you you know, in the book, you talk about traveling to Jamaica and to Cuba and looking at how they run you know, how they run their co-ops, you know, especially in Cuba, how much is there still to learn that you could bring back to the co-op that you haven't yet? Or, you know, how many, how many things have you found in your travels that you would, that you think could, could optimize even the U.S. system of, of, uh, of food co-ops? I think that we need to make bolder and more direct connections and cultivate relationships with suppliers in other countries. 
In other words, we are all still dealing too much with centralized distributors. And the more that we forge uh, direct relationships, like with the people in Jamaica that I worked with, you know, we're working to get products directly from them. And then it really cuts out the middle person. And so um, I, I think that's that's where we're headed. It was it was incredible to me to hear that you said, you know, Jamaica is so well known for its coffee and the farmers didn't even have access to Blue Mountain coffee. That's also seems like an example of capitalism at its absolute worst, that you're, you know, the people people that should have the most abundance of, of this natural resource have have nothing. Yeah, exactly. They have to ship it all. And they really don't see a share of that money even. But that's the IMF and the World Bank that, that did that. So as far as you bringing in products to the co-op, like what's the ratio of like what you can get locally versus what you get through other distributors and things like that? I think it's probably uh, pretty close to 50-50. And it helps that that companies like Equal Exchange and Dr. Bronner's are you're able to go direct with because those are such big brands that offer a lot of different products. Frontier Co-op is another one that offers bulk herbs, and that's a big part of our business is, is bulk herbs. Does it feel like, you know, kind of like the record labels in the 80s and 90s where there was like Mortem Records versus Caroline, or is it doesn't compare because of the way that the business works as far as uh, between the different stores or do you you mean between the like like between between like kind of like the mom and pop distributor versus going direct to like if we buy records directly from discord oh it's so much like it's so much like the punk scene i mean i went to um dc one time to lobby against an act of congress that was gonna weaken the gmo labeling and I was there with like David Bronner, Amy from Amy's Kitchen, Annie from Annie's Mac and Cheese, you know, the guy from Stonyfield, all these like iconic natural food magnates. And, you know, we were easily all on the same level uh, working for the same, you know, it's, 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 it's a, pre- a very, very cool community. Isn't that Stonyfield that, that, that Yo Baby yogurt? I have no idea. Stonyfield was bought by Dana. Unfortunately, the guy who did that, he set it up, though, in a way that it wasn't a complete sellout. I don't know the details exactly, but he's he positioned it well for the workers. Because I got I got a beef with them about stealing a, a record. I met uh, I met Bob from Bob's Red Mill, though, and he was a jerk. And I was so sad. <laughs> I really loved his business. And I was at, at the Fancy Food Festival. And, uh, Ooh, Fancy Food. <laughs> and he was there signing. You know who goes to Fancy Food every year? My friend Nelson. And when we were in high school, he used to throw a chicken parmesan sandwich at Burger King in the air and try to catch it in his mouth. So I don't know about this fancy food. I was going to ask, wait, hold on. I want to hear the situation, Dave, because like he was a jerk to you, but a lot of people are jerks to you. No, no, he was, actually wasn't a jerk to me. He was a jerk to a friend of mine who was a huge fan, and she just wanted to get something signed. But we were there for one of our clients. I work in, in marketing, Bobby, and one of our one of our, our clients is a, um, a New York State maple syrup producer. He got really mad that we were wasting his time because we weren't potential customers. We were, uh, other, we were representing another brand. And he said, I don't have time for this. He got really angry, but whatever. <laughs> Bo- Bobby, Bobby, do you ever go to the fancy food conference? Never. He's just very focused. Uh, See, Dave, I think there's something to learn about this. Maybe uh, you should think about that. We all got to do things for work that we don't uh, we don't love. True, uh, very true. <laughs> you know, you've taken trips to other countries, and it sounds like you're consulting about co-ops. Is that part of your work at French Broad, or is that something you do separately? So one of the things about co-ops in the U.S. that a lot of people don't know is that most of us are part of a national co-op. 
called the National Co-op Grocers. And that's something I sit on the board of directors of. And it makes us very strong in this country. So we have basically almost 200 stores that operate as a chain, but it's unity without uniformity. We don't, we have membership agreements, but we don't have to wear the same uniform. You know what I'm saying? And so when we negotiate, uh, like with a national distributor, we're negotiating as as a chain. And so we have better buying power than a lot of regional chains. And yet we're this pretty tiny store with a lot of scotch tape all over the the shelves and you know like a used bookstore kind of looks is there a reason that you sit in that seat is it you is it because your co-op has been around a long time how does that work i got voted on the board and so uh, as the general manager i'm the representative for our co-op so i'm the designated rep of our membership so i can run for the board and i also vote for the board um yeah so it's it's similar to how our co-op is i i read something in your book it's you you, you listed a a couple of numbers and i, I didn't I just wanted to try to get the scope? It said you said there's 29,000 co-ops in the U.S. and 350 million co-op memberships. That sounds very high. How does how do those numbers work? Well, I mean, it's 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 an interesting thing, and people from other countries are really surprised that there are that many co-ops in the U.S. I don't know if I'm answering your question as far as how that works. Um, I mean, 350 million is like almost everybody. Is a membership a person? A membership is a person. <laughs> I feel left out. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have to find a co-op. <laughs> like seriously, get into a cab in Minneapolis and that cab driver is a, is a member of a co-op. I mean, in some places in this country, it's really well established, but um, the, the word cooperative fell out of use during the McCarthy era because people were afraid of being associated with communism and socialists. Got it. So you just, they kind of, there's like a rebranding in there. I, I grew up in a co-op that was built in the 50s. Okay. Like True Value <laughs> True Value Hardware is a co-op. Ace Hardware is a co-op. So there's a... So was my apartment building. But that's yeah. that's different though. You're not counting, are you counting cooperative co-op uh, apartments too? I don't know about if housing is in that number. Uh, businesses okay. certainly are, all types of businesses. And, and if you're an employee of that business, you're automatically a member? Nope. No, nope. you have to pay. You have to pay that uh, share. You have to buy that share. Is there such a thing as a food condominium? <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's maybe that's uh, something you, an idea you can push to the board. Whatever that means. <laughs> well, I do think. I mean, a lot of a lot of the buildings. I don't know if it's the same in Asheville, but I know in like in New York City, they have all of those those buildings that have their own grocery store in them, and a lot of them are co ops just for the building itself. So they do have something. I mean, I guess that would be technically a food co op and a food condominium. What if it's a co-op though? The building could be a co-op and then it'd be a double co-op. Co-op square. It would be a co-op co-op. Yes, that is that is true. So so Bobby, let's go let's go back a little bit. I want to talk about I want to talk about your your early years and and what what led you to where you are now, both with and basically everything that you, everything that you do now and and where that kind of came from. You know, starting off being a kid in D.C., you talk a little bit about it in your book. You kind of drop a bomb and then don't really talk about it, saying that your dad was in the CIA. Is that something you feel comfortable talking about? Is that something that you know? What was that like growing up, especially? in relation to what you've become? Yeah, it was kind of an embarrassment, uh, honestly, and kind of funny for him <laughs> because he sent us all through the D.C. public school system and we're all very, uh, I wouldn't say radical, but certainly liberal. And he, you know, he's a Republican, but, you know, Republicans changed over time. He he was more like, he. you could actually debate him, you know, <laughs> like he would, he would be, he would listen to your ideas. But yeah, we were all pretty embarrassed about that. And thankfully he, 
his work was not in Central America or some of these places that they just did horrible things. He actually worked, he was head of Eastern Europe at the, at the height of his career. So we lived in London when I was a, a baby and he would go into East Berlin under an assumed alias. And he basically worked with Lech Walesa and the Solidarity Party to, um, yeah, to bring so-called democracy to Poland. Do you think that, do you think like when you were on the punk rock scene, you might've been compromised by a KGB agent that was a, uh... Posing as a punk rocker, straight as straight as as straight as a, a CIA conspiracy <laughs> could be a KGB conspiracy. All right, that's true. They want to save the vodka for themselves. You're going to have to launch an investigation into the DC punk scene because many of us had parents who were involved in government work. Wow, that's that's something to think about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they, they they talk a little bit about that. I think in the Salad Days documentary, but I mean, yeah, anyone who lived in the DC area usually their parents had something to do with government. It's the main source of, of income. So, I mean, that that is really interesting. And I never really thought about it that way, that so many voices came out that were so political out of a system that was probably kids that were raised by parents who, uh, who were part of the, uh, part of the system themselves. It's also an interesting, uh, perspective on Reagan. You know, he is so lifted up as this Republican icon, like he was some kind of respectable dude, but you know, even as kids, we knew Reagan was a piece of shit, you know? <laughs> I mean, well, hold on though. So, so soul side toured behind the iron curtain as it was falling. Is this a coincidence? That is a coincidence. And it must've <laughs> blown, it must've blown my dad away. I mean, <laughs> I just can't even imagine what he thought about that. Did he give you some tips? Did you, did you get like a phone number like with no to... name on it just in case? <laughs> say hi to someone for him. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's remarkable. It must have just blown him away. Who knows? He probably had somebody uh, keeping watch on us. Yeah, Who maybe, knows? maybe that's maybe that's why it, it worked out. Maybe. <laughs> uh, so I, I just wanted to ask about Yugoslavia. Um, yeah. So, I mean, Yugoslavia is a country that kind of resisted the USSR, even though they were communist. Did you feel that while you were there? Is, is there, is there, was there any difference between one part of the Eastern Bloc and another as far as like your fish out of water band, like playing this kind of illegal music? I mean, that, that was a pretty bizarre setting. And then the country was falling apart as we, like we were there one month before the U.S. proclaimed Slobodan Milosevic as an enemy. And so that was, that was a very interesting experience because we're driving through there, like all, all the shows except one got canceled because of the war that was starting. And we still had to drive through all the way south through Kosovo because our next shows were in Greece. And as we got farther and farther south, it was more and more military that we were interfacing with. And we, we had to bribe our way through that country. By the time we got to Greece, we were broke. Wow. I mean, that's, I mean, have, have you ever needed those kinds of skills when you come back in the U.S.? Like, I mean, I'm just saying, like you know, it's like it's it's got to be so different, isn't it? Like when you're touring Boston, Massachusetts, and then you're behind, you know, a military regime. Does it rub off on you? Oh, it completely changed our lives. I mean, it completely. Were you driving a Yugo in Yugoslavia? In Yugoslavia, they have a different name for it. Oh. <laughs> I heard you're a Yugo aficionado, Bill. I, there's a Yugo in my neighborhood. I took a picture mm -hmm. of it yesterday. Yeah, that's why I thought you liked it. You sent me a picture of a Yugo. I just liked it because the license plate also said Yugo, and it was a Mets license plate. And I just feel like the guy really likes Lost Causes. That's probably the Mets team car. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop the conversation for one second and tell you, if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. 
Want to help out with some gas money to get us the next show? We have merch and more at killedbydesk.com. Now let's get back to the show. So, Bobby, talking about, I mean, I kind of told you that we weren't going to talk, we weren't going to talk about, uh, <laughs> about the back in the day, uh, tour stories and all that. But, but now that it's been broached, I have to ask, you recorded the last out, al- the last Soulside album. Was it on that tour? Yes. That Hot Body was recorded? Okay. So was the band falling apart or did you guys get home and then just decide to go your own separate ways? Was there tension within the band as well at the same time? There was a lot of tension and you can hear that on the record. Like, in other words, I think a lot of the backup vocals are a straight up rebuke of what I'm singing. And and I think that we effectively channeled that conflict into the music. And I noticed that while we were doing it and embraced it. I thought it was kind of cool, but we we broke up at the very so it was a 6 month tour. We did 2 months in the US. And then when we got to Europe to do the four months, we broke up right at the beginning of that. And so we had to do the tour as a band that knew we weren't going to be continuing afterwards, which was really hard. That was really hard for me because I, I was... For six months, that's that's a lot to commit to. Yeah. And I was kind of the odd man out. And so it was, you know, we were all childhood friends. Like I met the drummer in second grade and uh, the guitar player junior high school and the bass player in high school. So that was... It was a pretty hard breakup, and that's why us getting back together and doing shows again and writing music again was like pretty healing stuff. And it's such a leap. I mean, that's what that was always what was so confusing to me in a good way is is there's such a leap between each album, and then I feel like the the new forty five is is different in a way. I mean, obviously there's a lot of years between it, but each release has such a a different sound to it and and such a growth. When you when you got back together to record. The, the three new songs that you did, was that something where you had all grown and kind of met each other right where you wanted to be? Or was there, you know, was there a little bit of time it took to, to, to figure out where you all stood as far as music? There was a little bit of time. Like, so we, we had played for a few years already before we composed any new songs, but it was my mission the, the whole time because I did a, a bunch of bands after Soulside, but I never, we never, none of those bands coalesced as well as Soulside did. So I always wanted to make music with these guys again because they kept playing together and so they have a very psychic connect like playing music with these people who have played together for 30 years straight is pretty amazing as a vocalist you know they're just creating this incredibly tight template for me to do my thing on top of i knew a guy who had a fanzine called soul story which he named because soul side was his favorite band Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. The, so, well, I so, interviewed in his first issue. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so after that six-month tour, is that where you decided to like go to college? Is that how it worked? Where you're just like, I need to take a break from this? No, we were already we were already in college. Like okay. we we were taking off semesters to do that touring. So, you know, my experience, like right after that six-month tour, I think like a week went by and I was back in class in Boston trying to explain to people where I'd been. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm not because they nobody, believe you. <laughs> nobody knew about punk. I mean, few people knew about punk rock when it, you know, if you're in a mainstream college environment, they're like, what? You're in a band that tours and you're not famous? What? I would have had a hard time not pulling Howard Zinn aside and been like, let me tell you what I saw behind the curtain. <laughs> 
Yeah, really. I feel like his book's not holding up. <laughs> <laughs> that guy was like a celebrity. I didn't. I didn't get to talk to him. Really. really? So were there people that just went to school just to just to take his class? I mean, his classes were very hard to get into, and they were huge. They were they were held in you know the massive auditoriums because and and the subject was so fucking dry. You know, he really brought theatrics to it in a way that um, I still respect, and I can, I can still picture it right now because for me, you know that book came out of a lot of research I did even back then, because if the teachers were going to make me read Dante's Inferno or shit about Plato and Socrates, I had to read stuff about the Black Panthers. I mean, (laughs) that that other stuff is just not interest me at all. You echoed what so many people, I think, growing up, especially young punk kids, when they're trying to read Chomsky and they're like, I get what he's saying and he's so smart, but this is so dry. This is so... This is hard to stay awake for. I remember you could buy his CDs uh, when I was a teenager, and I was like, I really want to listen to these, but I can't make it through. It's too dense for me. Yeah, and in person, it was just as bad. I I called up Noam Chomsky once, and his wife answered. She was like, well, what do you want to talk about? And I was like, I want to ask him questions about his bar mitzvah. And she, she said no and just hung up. And then someone, wow. I think, I think t- Tim from Maximark Roll told me, like, he would have totally loved to talk about that. She shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> I, I stole a number out of Tim's Rolodex. <laughs> Well, you said something. You said something in your book. I believe I'm quoting this right. That real students of history always need to dig deeper. So it seems like with revolutionary threads, there's so much. There's so much in there, but in not in a Chomsky way, in an interesting way, where you know some of it is history, and some of it is memoir, and some of it is a dissection or a, a explanation on Rastafari and all of that. Did you have trouble not going too far in one direction when you were writing it, where you were like, I can't make this a history book. I can't make this a straight memoir, and I can't make this. A examination of Rastafarianism. You know, the book really started as a compilation of quotes. So me tracking my reading through the years and getting those quotes that just really ring out as something that, you know, like I like calling that book, it was a mixtape of quotes, you know, because mixtapes you're always making because you're trying to turn people on to music. So you put something that you know they're going to like, and then the next song is something that you're trying to turn them on to. And that's what I was doing. Like, I did not want that book to be about me at all. But um, the editors, they turned it down, uh, the publishing company turned it down 10 years prior to it, at them actually accepting it, and because it just wasn't a cohesive story. And so I had to make it a cohesive story. And when the editors finally got to it, they were like, and you need to put more anecdotes from your life in it um, to, for it to make sense. And so I kind of did that reluctantly because I even now, you know, I look at it and I don't really like reading that book because I'm not really interested in reading about me. But it's not for you. You're not the target audience. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, so what's the next book about? The next book is about what was going on in 1896. And it's it's similar in a way that, you know, and it's, it's funny because this never even occurred to me until one of the sources I was reading recently is that, you know, history, it's like you take an African history class, it's all about African history. And it's not talking about what was going on in Europe at the same time and vice versa. And like our, our worlds are internationally, we're so fucking connected way before the internet. So here, here's an example. So I'm, I'm basically writing about the Atlantic world, 
you know, so everything that borders the Atlantic Ocean. So, and Ethiopia is a center of it, uh, which is unsurprising. But when Egypt invaded Ethiopia in the 1800, they had a Confederate general training their troops right after the Civil War. Like, fucking mind blower. How connected all of that is. I mean, that is, and it's not just the colonialism aspect. It's really, it really is, you know, these figures in history just end, end up in the strangest places. Civil War were expert. I mean, we, you know, that was, they changed warfare. That's why so many people died, right? So those people were experts, right? They had, they could find jobs for new wars at other places, right? So it's just, it's just opportunity, opportunism, right? It could be too, right? Like, hey, I can make some more money here than the war, the place where I lost the war. Totally. And why wasn't, so you don't need, you don't need the energy. Internet. It's just money. It's, it's called consulting. Yes. <laughs> totally. So as far as the year, though, you're just like cutting apart one year? Is that the, is that the pitch? Well, that's the center of the story because it's uh, the year is 1896. That is when the Ethiopians defeated the invading Italians at the Battle of Adwa. Did the Italians surrender? Um, they lost. Usually they surrender. Yeah. They held on to um, what was northern Ethiopia at the time, which is now Eritrea. That is the same year that Plessy versus Ferguson passed in the U.S. and segregation became law. And also the same year that um, Cuba was throwing out the Spanish. And so the premise of the book is essentially that at the lowest point of race relations in the U.S., uh, the lowest point for uh, black people, you had these victories on the other side of the world that then fueled the Harlem Renaissance and the civil rights movement and really helped to overthrow Jim Crow. That sounds fascinating. I like that. It, you know, it debunked the myth of white supremacy. Got it. Were you a history student, like in college? Yeah. I was a film student, but then history really took over as what I was really interested in. In the book, in the book, you talk about an introduction to, to Rastafari and all, all of work that you've done and, and, and what, what was incorporated in the book and all of that. So it was a show with bad brains that kind of started all of that. I know you said that in, in the book. So just speaking with HR after a show was, was really kind of your introduction. You had no involvement with, with uh, Rastafari before that it was really that was your first uh first introduction no i i got into reggae before punk because my brother my brother was the punk and so my brother was the singer for what became the first discord band they were called the slinkies but then when he left to go to college they became the teen idols with a, a different singer and so his band which was ian mckay's also first band they would practice at our house and so I was rebellious. I, I didn't want to be like them. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, reggae was what I got into, but then punk was the scene that was going on. And me and the bass player were working at a reggae record label called Ross Records just outside of D.C. So I was meeting Rastas and talking with Rastas. It was HR who gave me the, this idea that Rastafari in the U.S. would be different. So, you know, you know, the annoying people who get into Rasta or just like to smoke pot and then all of a sudden they're speaking in a Jamaican accent, yes. right? <laughs> and so for me, I realized that, no, this would be something in the U.S. that's not not just going to be taking on a Jamaican identity. This is actually something that we can apply to our own cultural context. You touched upon that in the book as well. I mean, it sounded like not that you. I don't want to. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you. You sounded like you took issue with with certain elements of. I don't know if those are certain mansions of of it or or certain point of views when it comes to Rastafari, especially uh, in regards to uh, homosexuality and whatnot. Do you feel like what you embraced was your opportunity? 
to kind of redo and and kind of take what you liked from from Rastafari and and, and kind of leave what you didn't, or did you feel like it, those people were wrong because it was a misinterpretation? I think everybody can be right within that space because again, it's it's a really decentralized thing, and so yeah, there there are these mansions that are somewhat organized, but there's very few congregations, you know, where groups of people are participating in the same school of thought. And, you know, I, I definitely get into that in the book that every Rasta is very different in what they believe, which is, you know, really great. Um, yeah, I don't know if I really answered your question there. No, no, no. I, it, it, it just seemed like you had a little bit of conflict there or at least. Oh, yeah. I would say the conflict was when the Internet came out, you know, because, see, before to really get introduced to Rasta ideas, you had to you had to meet someone. You had to like have a conversation with them. You had to ask some questions and probably get some pretty hard answers, especially if you're a white person. When the internet came out and Rastafari was getting depicted as it was there, I felt that was wrong. I felt like, no, these are just all the extreme voices. And what, cause what I had experienced as a young person was that Rastafari people are very inclusive, that when you're inquisitive, regardless of what you look like, um, it was a very welcoming environment, a very teaching and learning environment and listening on both sides. So that's what I wanted to debunk. I wanted to debunk because also, yeah, like this fire burn where, you know, Rastas are chanting fire burn, Babylon was, you know, but also people with different lifestyles that that's not what i experienced but again you know everybody's experience within it is valid yeah i mean i definitely think that there is that you know it tends towards caricature for people like the way that you said you know there's there's they just think it's, it's someone smoking pot all, and even in, in the time i spent in jamaica i mean i was told you know i was told you know you don't want to you don't want to associate with rastas they're you know they're like dangerous hippies it's kind of how you you know how they're how they're even thought of by other jamaicans it's, it's like they're like the untouchables of uh of jamaica it is pretty interesting considering that most people know of jamaica because of rasta and you know that's also like what you what you got at is is where the prison work really was so rewarding because the the pot wasn't part of it. Because I do think that many people call themselves Rastas and are drawn to it simply because they like to get high. So so you said in, in, in the book at, at one point, you said that um, with prison co-ops, that not something that we necessarily have in the US, but something that uh, exists in Puerto Rico, I guess would be the only example of, of uh, any US territory. There's proof that there's a reduced rate of recidivism when it comes to prisoners being able to participate in something like a co-op. Is that something that you think would ever be possible in the U.S. with the way that the justice system works now or the penal system works now? Or is that, are we just so far away from that that it, there's so much that needs to be done first? I think it is possible. I mean, that's that's what is was amazing about actually going into prisons and doing that work. Because we were, you know, we would, from minimum security to maximum security, it was a mind blower that even the Rasta prisoners had these religious rights where, you know, we could go in there and do religious services and the prison administrations would have to foot the bill, uh, just like they would for Jewish inmates or Christian inmates or Muslim inmates. Could you talk a little bit more about co-ops and prisons? Because I think we need to, like, explain that a little bit and, like, what's the benefit and, like, what's the sell there? What, what should people feel positive about? hearing about a co-op in prison. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had more experience working with them because my my knowledge of it is just based on the research. But where it comes in is, is the participation. So the thing about co-ops that is amazing um, is that 
the participation in the innovation and the decision making. So it, it's very empowering for anybody who's involved because it's easier for them take a leadership position. And so in a co-op, you know, you would have like say a board chair, the board president. Well, you could easily get voted to become that position. And by, you know, and so it really instills leadership innovation in people. And in the case of Puerto Rico, it was a craft co-op and they were sponsored, you know, they were sponsored by people outside the community to sell their crafts. And so they were essentially learning how to run a business Uh, but also how to do it cooperatively so that, yeah, of course, when they get out, you know, they know what they want to do. I mean, could that apply to children's education too, right? Would, you know, being part of a co-op be better than a student government that doesn't really make decisions that matter? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. But it depends on the co-op because, you know, you still have tyrants everywhere. (laughs) And, you know, my co-op, actually, the workers at one point unionized because of that, because uh, the leadership was tyrannical. So, you know, when I, I can't give people individual pay raises, I negotiate with Teamsters to figure that out. Oh, wow. So you're kind of the boss there. What is the breakdown of like other bigger departments? Like, is there produce and grocery? Like, how does that work? And like, how does the management work? Right. And I didn't even know about this union thing. Like, what, what does the day to day look like for your own leadership and, you know, style? Well, so as the as the CEO essentially and the sole employee of the board of directors I could just work upstairs and have it be an office job and hire a store manager to run the store. It would be ridiculous at a co-op my size. But that's what uh, the bigger co-ops do because the the general manager um you know, you're responsible for where the business is going to be five to 10 years from now. But for us, living wages was really important and raising the bottom wage. And so to do that, we had we have to have a very small administrative staff. And, it, and it's interesting because some uh, there have been some moments where staff members feel like they want more management. And we just don't, we just don't have a lot of these people working in offices pushing paper. Uh, to maybe I don't know what they would want, but but so yeah, my day to day is is that all the department managers work for me, you know, from the finance manager to grocery, deli, produce, and uh, so we work as a team, and then all the employees work for them. Uh, but then I do HR and I oversee marketing, so I wear a lot of hats, and that's how this. The smaller co-ops work, you know, it, it's that's the thing with corporations is that they do a lot of the administrative stuff off site. So you don't have to house that at each store, whereas um, co-ops, we really haven't gotten into that so much because we're often just single store operators. And so we have to do everything in house. It sounds like it'd be harder to do the pirate thing when people are, you know, 50 miles away calling the shots. Does that sound right? Totally. Yeah. And I mean, like I run a cash register. I, I still do that. I clean up, you know, wet spills or broken glass, you know. Well, that, that's a management style, right? You want to, you do that not just to clean up, but to make sure that, the, you know, everyone is feeling good about what you're doing versus what they're doing. Does that sound right? Absolutely. And I, I don't feel like I could, I would be uh, equipped to make the decisions that I have to make if I were not participating in the work. It's not just managing by walking around. <laughs> it's actually participating. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you, you're not a fan of like the five-minute manager book, like you give the shit sandwich technique. I thought we talked about health food stores. 
<laughs> no, not so much. <laughs> Did it make you uncomfortable at first when you first assumed a management position in your career? We've seen a, a running course uh, in these interviews uh, with our guests where it seems like people that come from a, a punk rock background sometimes have a, have trouble being managers and telling other people what to do. Was that something that was hard for you? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, my family uh, life thrust me into that because we had four kids. And so I had to. And now you talk to Teamsters as well? Yeah. Yeah. And I have those hard, those hard conversations with staff members who have to move on and be fired or whatever. It's the worst part of it. Uh, but over, over time, I've become more comfortable with it. So correct me on your timeline. So you moved to Asheville in the late 90s? Yes. And you were you at the co-op and then left? Or did you start at Earth Fair and then end up at the co-op? I was at the co-op making five fifty an hour. It might have been five twenty-five. And yeah, the Earth Fair job was seven twenty-five. So after three months at the co-op, I reluctantly went to Earth Fair. And I literally said to myself, because I'd never worked, I'd, I'd worked briefly for some corporations, but yeah, co-ops were my, my love. So I, I literally said to myself, well, maybe I could learn the skills to come back as the general manager one day. Were there regrets about Earth Fair or you, uh, you feel you made a necessary step and kind of picked up what you needed to and brought it back to the co-op? Oh yeah, exactly. And Earth Fair fired me. I mean, I didn't have a choice in that one either. Because, because you know, they sold they sold the company so many times that that's just what happens. Like those people don't want to have people like me who had been there for so long and have personal influence to still be around creating dissent among the ranks. But you came, you came with feels. such you came with such a pedigree already, though, from the work that you had done in D.C., whether it was with Food Not Bombs or or the Anarchist Black Cross or or even the Beehive Collective. Like, so when you came to Asheville, was it your goal to to kind of become a force in the same way in Asheville, or was it not that um, conscious? Was it more just like find a way to survive? No, it was it was my goal. I mean, I, the thing that was disappointing about Asheville was that punk rock wasn't quite here. But I also think that was good because it didn't allow me to sort of rest on my laurels. The funny thing is that I don't know if you if you all have ever heard of the fanzine Comet Bus. Oh yeah. Yeah. Aaron. Right. Yeah. So Aaron, yeah, Aaron was here when I moved here and he's like, yeah, we're starting a punk rock scene. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it was sad to see him move on, but you know, it really remarkable when somebody like say from Admiral would walk into the co-op and be like, Hey, you're Bobby Sullivan, right? Hey, I'm so-and-so, you know, like that was so few and far in between to happen. So, um, in that sense, I had to do it with hippies. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like that changed you? I mean, it definitely, I grew, I grew from it for sure, but it also gave opportunities. Like I'd never been to a rainbow gathering before and the, the people here, like, I think that that was kind of, that's a kind of interesting side of the hippie movement because it's very much like the DIY punk rock thing. And so, you know, at one point my family, we moved on to some land that was owned by one person, but she let a lot of families move on to there and, you know, it was completely off the grid. I built a deck out of pallets and we lived in a, a canvas yurt, you know, with a wood stove in it and took shits outside. <laughs> My sister was doing that until very recently. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dave's sister was talking about Earth Fair saying, you know, it's like the evil corporate thing. And it's just like, I, 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 didn't, I didn't really trust her word. So it's glad, I'm glad that she's laid out, you know, the difference. <laughs> Well, it was also still a, a pretty small company when I started. And interestingly enough, I still I, I still interact with that CEO that was there. And he was smart enough to recognize he needed freaks like me 
bring some personality to that business. Like he recognized the strength of the ground level people and he cultivated my career. I mean, I'm very thankful for that. And I, I was surprised that this corporate dude would trust somebody with dreadlock. Do you think on the other side, if you hadn't gotten fired, that you'd be on, you, you'd be some corporate guy at earth fair? Or do you think that that never could have happened? You just wouldn't have been able to do that. No, no, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I would have done it if I had to, because you know, with the family and all, you gotta you gotta earn a living. Yeah, and that's. I mean, speaking about uh, speaking about Asheville, I mean, you you that's a pretty drastic move. I mean, I did a similar one. I, I moved from New York City to, to Louisville, Kentucky. So, um, you know, I I I understand the reasons behind uh, me wanting to leave the city and to go to some place that was a little less hectic. What was what was your reasons? Just raising a family and and wanting to be outside of the city. Yeah, I mean, we we were living just outside of DC, and it was an environment where we had to say no to our kids a lot. You know, no, don't do that. No, no, no. Wait, come here. You know, don't do, don't do that. There's broken glass here. You know, like we definitely, once we got the idea of growing up around them, growing up around fresh water coming straight from the ground, that was, yeah, that was a good idea. And it was also funny. It was leading up to Y2K. <laughs> <laughs> And me and my wife both had dreams of the city burning. And so we're like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's move to the country. I mean, has there ever been in your mind of like the idea of going native, you know, like just going off the grid completely? Is that a thing? I mean, I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm fascinated by that concept, but is that something that's in the back of your mind? Yeah, we were going to do that. Definitely. We tried. But I never was able to get my work out of downtown. Got it. You know, like I would have I would have dr definitely dreamed of working from home and figuring out that. But it just never worked out for me that way. I quote Erica a lot on this because she changed a lot when she started having children. And, you know, she moved to uh, her and her partner moved to Asheville before they had any children. And, and I remember her telling me, I think two kids in Asheville, you know, everything she used to love about Asheville, she started to hate. And she said, she said, the thing about Asheville is you can buy a gravity bong at three in the morning, but you can't find a pharmacy. So do you have that conflicted relationship, especially I guess with downtown? I mean, she's in Marshall now, I think for that reason, do you have trouble with, with what the city's become? And, and, and be, this is a two-parter because the French broad co-op is such a, everyone's an owner. Are there owners now that you don't like? There have always been owners that I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I definitely struggle with what the city has become, but also surprisingly co-op general managers get to travel a fair amount because we're a member of that national co-op. We Before COVID, we were going to meetings, national meetings twice a year. And then being on the board, that was a, an additional meeting somewhere um, in the U.S. And and then the music started up again. I got to travel. And Asheville is was still always a great place to come home to because people say hi to each other. You're walking down the street and somebody driving by even waves at you. I feel like you, you at some point you can just be a consultant and go out on your own. Is that like a thought in the back of your head? I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, poison your <laughs> current status. But. No, I mean, I've, I've lived check to check most of my life because we, you know, had kids and I work in retail. And so to me, honestly, the thought of being a consultant and not having like a steady gig is, is a little frightening, but now my kids are older. And so every, I'm rethinking everything. I mean, I had an empty nest for a month <laughs> before one of them moved, one of them moved back. So wait, I, I'm this is this is completely off the track here. I'm confirm I'm confused about all of the Tim Kerrs. There's more than one. There's Big Boys Tim Kerr. So there's there's Tim there's Tim Kerr from Big Boys, right? There's Tim Kerr yeah. who's a hockey player, and then there's the record guy from Portland. 
Tim Kerr Records. The, yeah, the guy Tim Kerr Records who put up the Poison of the Year records. And I think there's also a DJ, like a disc jockey named Tim Kerr. Which Tim Kerr is your favorite? That's Tim Kerr. <laughs> Definitely the big boys, Tim Kerr. If you haven't met him, he's one of the sweetest individuals ever in the world. I agree. <laughs> And you, and, you know, the thing about that, too, the very first punk rock show I went to was the big boys uh, playing with Minor Threat. Oh, that must have been awesome. I was there to see the headliner, which was Trouble Funk, a DC Go-Go band. You read my mind. So was, like, everyone into Go-Go? Is that just a thing? If you live in the DC Baltimore area, you have to be into Go-Go? I don't know anything about it. And is Henry Rollins pretending he was into Go-Go and he really wasn't? <laughs> That's an even better question. No, everybody was into Go-Go. And, you know, one of those bands, one of those uh, rare essence played in Asheville at Leaf Downtown. And I walked up to them and I'm like, you guys played my junior high school prom. <laughs> They're like, which school? I'm like, Woodrow Wilson. They're like, yeah. <laughs> so no, everybody, everybody, I mean, go, cause you know, it was just like as ubiquitous as hip hop is now. That's how Go-Go was in DC. Street vendors blasting it, selling tapes. I got that Tesco V record and there's like a 10 minute electronic, you know, Rototom thing in the middle. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Why did they put this out. But I think you had to be there, right? <laughs> to even get the joke. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. And that speaks to the fact that I don't think Gogo made it into recording very well. It really was a live, a live experience. So it's kind of like Afrobeat in that sense. Yeah, except Afrobeat sounds good on record. I don't, I don't know that Gogo, like Trouble Funk, especially, they just mixed the synthesizer way too high in the mix. I mean, live, it's the drums. Well, that, now people can Google this if they don't know what the hell we're talking about. Yeah, we're gonna have to do some links for Gogo because I feel like it's one of those things. Yeah. So let's touch on Soul Side. Let's touch on. Wait, wait, wait. We already talked about music too much, Dave. You ready? You ready? No, I didn't. <laughs> I want to know what prompted what prompted the reunion. Was it just the reissues that came out through Discord? No, it was the Salad Days movie. Scott, who put that out, was very much of our era, and he asked us to play the premiere of the movie in DC. And so we we uh, we booked that show, and it sold out in like a week. And we're like, holy shit, okay. And then we we had to do a warm up gig in New York because that's where people that's where we were practicing. And then that sold out. So then we ended up doing two nights in both places, and uh, that really got the ball rolling. Was it strange for you, the Washington Post, for instance, covered the, the reunion and all of that. Is it strange to get the amount of attention that you all got from the reunion and the, the new release versus what you got originally? I mean, it didn't feel like we got that much recognition. I think even on the last European tour that like we just did and recorded the seven inch over there, I, the coolest thing was like, there's nobody trying to meet us. <laughs> like People are not that impressed by us as individuals or enamored you know it's like it's a it still is about the scene and the experience and all those people from the the vendors that are there you know like i said before the journalists everybody it's just this collective thing it's not about these exceptional individuals are there kids at the shows or is it all just like is, is it all mostly older folks that remember you from the first time around yeah it's mostly the older folks that either were there or just missed us but poland was the catalyst for bringing us to Europe last year or the year before. And uh, because the people, you know, the people that organized our shows in 89, just before uh, the, the 
you know, the Iron Curtain fell, their lives drastically changed after that. And so Soulside being there was like this moment. Fugazi had also gone later and other bands. So it wasn't just Soulside, but they, they organized that whole thing. And that was the coolest thing because when we went to Poland originally, we played in culture centers. I mean, it was like pulling up to a museum and playing in there. It wasn't like clubs or uh, anything like that. When we went back this time, they, they had their own, you know, Gilman Street type places. And that's where young people came. That's pretty cool. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that they have that kind of infrastructure. It's almost like, uh, you know, it, it took longer for them to set all that up. But that's that's very cool to hear. You know, even even um, I had I got this book recently called "Burning Down the House" H U S, and it's about how the punk scene in in uh, Germany in East Berlin had a pretty big part in bringing down the wall. You know, in the nucleus of the demonstrations in Eastern Germany that brought down the fucking wall. So the punk scene, the punk scene was you know they tapped into the DIY punk scene. Um, and that's how the Solidarity Party learned how to do their propaganda and communications. It makes us all feel like a bunch of posers. You're a bunch of posers. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about in the book, you talk about your correspondence with Marilyn Buck. And it's interesting to me now with some of those names associated coming back to the news. So someone like Susan Rosenberg, who is now kind of a an alt-right name that they're using to uh, to incite that that the left is is going crazy. Is it weird to see some of the people that you spoke with or worked with or were associated with back in the day becoming, you know, becoming names that are tossed around again now? Yeah, I mean the most remarkable one was when they tried to use Barack Obama's association with Bill Ayers against him. Um, that 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 was funny to see Bill Ayers in the news all of a sudden as as all of a sudden a pariah again. I, the, you know the most remarkable part of seeing the Move Nine finally get out of prison that just like chokes me up to finally see that happen. But there's too many that are still in there. But I think it's good that these people are making it back into the news because you know they're who we need to learn from. You know, their experiences, their mistakes, their victories, those people worked hard to make change. Do you feel like that's where the, the punk scene kind of fell short, is that it was a lot of talk and not as much action as you saw from those folks back in the day? I mean, I wouldn't say that because I don't think that it was explicitly political or social activist oriented. I mean, I certainly was drawn to that side of the punk scene, and, and that actually caused a bit of the, the split in Soul Side. And um, <laughs> Now I, I, we're all on the same page with it. Think about it, though. I mean, like if most bands that would look back at releases they put out in 87, 88, 89, you know, they'd be like, oh, here's a weird dated song about a girl and a guy or whatever. And you had political lyrics that make as much sense, if not more than than they did even back then. You could say that about H.J. Wells writing about free love or whatever, too. <laughs> so that's that not, you know, that's not that's we're not special. You know, none of us are special. That's just history. I think Bobby will agree with me. That's just history. Like you look back and you're like, oh, wow, we're talking about the same thing. And it, it's just in a different way. True. It was quite the experience when we actually started performing the songs again, because I'd, I'd played mostly mellower music afterwards. And, and to have like to be singing what, what I'm singing and to have this wall of sound behind me. I mean, it was literally like in the practices, the hair on the back of my neck just stood right up like, holy shit. And that realization that home i can't believe these songs are still relevant oh, <laughs> solid state amplifiers have improved a lot you get a lot more voltage <laughs> was it something that you realized you that you didn't realize you were missing until you actually till it actually happened i mean i feel like having screamed in bands before um 
I always forget how cathartic it is to scream into a microphone until I actually do it again. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot. I love this. That makes me feel better. Yeah. Except that I didn't feel like I missed anything. My life with my family and raising, you know, cause that, that was the thing that I learned from the move organization. Once I started hanging out with them, Philadelphia, I realized that, you know, maybe changing the world is about having kids and raising them differently. Like the idea that you don't have to change just because you've become a parent. I think a lot of punk rockers become teachers for that reason too. It's like, yeah, it's, totally. it's, it's really a good way to like, you know, influence others with, you know, and, and, and feel good about what you're doing. I always thought punk was about having fun. I think it definitely <laughs> should be. I feel like we're, we're trying the hardest we can to have fun despite Dave's music questions. <laughs> for the record, the la- last, last person I want to teach you, my daughter is a punk rocker. <laughs> <laughs> well, Charlie, I mean, any punk rocker? I don't know. Any punk rocker. There's probably some out there that you'd be okay with. No, I hate, I hate every <laughs> punk rocker. <laughs> I think I think your daughter could probably teach us. Well, you know what bothered me when my daughter's in high school. You know they have these things that teachers put out, like uh, where you buy something for them. Not GoFundMe, but there's another name for it. They try to raise money, and somebody put out a book about a graphic novel about economics, and it was written by this guy I used to go to high school with that used to burn cheese doodles every day at lunch. <laughs> so you know, I was like, I told the teacher, I went to that parent teacher comp, I said. It wasn't on my, my daughter's teacher, but I said, you're not getting that book. And she's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And I said, good, because you burn cheese doodles every day at lunch. And she thought I was nuts. How often, Charlie, how often does your daughter say, I don't know what you're talking about? <laughs> she did when the Daily News came out, I'll tell you that. She said she didn't know me at all. Well, I don't know. What's worse, a CIA agent dad or Charlie? That's a question for nobody. <laughs> at least a CIA agent. A CIA agent dad most likely won't be on the cover of the Daily News. That's absolutely true. <laughs> it's less less embarrassing. Well, speaking of that, I mean, Bobby, what do your what do your kids think about you? Do they think you're cool? I mean, with the, between the band and the co op and everything, like, do they do they believe in what you believe in, or is it just a classic kind of kids uh, are going to do a one eighty from whatever their parents do? No, we're pretty much aligned. I really didn't like shove all this stuff down their throats, and so uh, when 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 it came time for punk rock to rear its head. In, in my family life, I never talked about it. They kind of discovered it on their own. And that was pretty fun to, uh, to watch, you know, so they would, pl- you know, plug Soulside into Pandora or whatever. And then, you know, then my, one of my daughters is like, yeah, I think first I really like Grey Matter the best, but now I really like Embrace. <laughs> yeah. well, 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 my daughter has about 200 albums right over here, vinyl. <laughs> and she wish she wish she can go to Blockbuster. I bet. Yeah, she does. <laughs> she told me there's only one Blockbuster left. There was one in Alaska. And they just, sell merchandise. Is it Alaska? The documentary is one of the top documentaries last week. Oh, really? We gotta check that out. We're very timely here. <laughs> right up, right very up topical. on what's happening, current events. Bobby, if, if I mean, if you did feel like writing a memoir, like what would you focus on? No idea, honestly. <laughs> I was trying to come up with a wrap-up question. All right, Dave. <laughs> I got yelled at for talking about music too much, so. <laughs> I don't do that enough. <laughs> at least we didn't ask him about the, the guitar sound on Eye Against Eye. I mean, I could get really <laughs> dorky and, and try and ask why on on the Spotify version of Less Deep Inside Keeps, they took X-Lion Tamer off of it, but I mean, uh, I'm not going to get there. <laughs> we uh, Discord almost released our version of Break On Through by The Doors. I hate The Doors. Wait, wait, wait. Why almost? 
What, what was the deciding factor to not release it? I don't know, honestly, but it wasn't important enough for us to, to try to make it happen. Are there any plans to do an album now that you've done the the 45 or is that kind of it for now? No, we're, yeah, we're working on it. Um, I just got three songs two days ago from the from the band that I'm working on. And actually what's cool is that each chapter in my book starts with lyrics of a song that I wrote uh, that I played uh, in, in a band in Asheville. And so now we're adapting some of those songs to become soul side songs, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's nice. So we ask this question and it's always, a, it's always a, a little strange, but when you think about your legacy, is it the work you've done with, with the co-op? Is it as an author? Is it with Soulside or with music in general, or is it as a parent? What do you see as being kind of your, the thing that you've, you've done that has brought the most uh, um, impact in your life? I mean, I don't, I don't know that I'm necessarily that impactful in society as far as like being remembered for anything. So, uh, but just personally, and the example that I set for my kids, I think is that uh, maybe a significant thing is that I'm still somehow able to do all the stuff, right? To work in a place that I believe in and to be creative on a daily basis to, you know, write, sell food, which I'm passionate about, make music and still be able to do it all that there's no giving up on the things that you love. Cool. I have one more question. That was a good ending, but uh, Jesse could edit this back in the thing. So all of us kind of went through this, you know, punk police kind of thing. The idea of selling out like to your kids, does that even mean? anything in this day and age you know when i look at the um how people think of discord and that scene and many other uh cities and scenes like that i think that it does make it somewhat special and because i didn't participate in music when people were able to all of a sudden sell out like we Soulside never had that opportunity um and that's what to me makes the music still so very special is that the reasons that we did it were not to make money or to write a song that would sell like we did stuff that we were just driven to do because we just had to do it so it's even hard to, for 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 that time it was even hard to understand what that would mean then there was like that mid nineties thing, it got weird. It got really weird. And, and I mean, if you look at like whatever people called emo, it's funny because emo was a relevant term for a while. It's not at all anymore. I don't think, but I do think for these young people going back and looking at, yeah, the eighties and the, and the music that really was independent. It is, it, it's special in a way. It's kind of like the YouTube videos that were actually not filmed on uh, digital, you know, <laughs> that they're analog that was transferred to digital. There's a special quality to it. Oh, there's an amazing video. I think it was, it ended up in the Fugazi documentary, but there's one of the early videos of them playing Waiting Room and the whole crowd just going crazy. And it just it looks so different than anything looks now. Yeah, well, there's not that many singers that spend the entire time yelling at the audience. <laughs> Nowadays, I don't remember experiencing that on the other show. Man, some of those shows were straight up like brawls between the band and the audience, especially when the Gulf War happened. That was a weird moment because um, I was in, in college in New England, and so I was going to the Fugazi shows. And that was when all of a sudden, like, jocks were showing up at Fugazi shows. It wasn't just punks anymore. And so when they would make their anti-war statements, like, many people in the audience were pro-war which was the weirdest thing to see at a punk rock show. I mean, I, that, that was the best fear show I've ever seen, though, was <laughs> during that time. <laughs> That's it, kids. The gig is up. The cops are here and your mom is going jails, hospitals, and all your friends' houses wondering where you've been. 
Tune in next week for another fascinating, mesmerizing, and absolutely unmissable episode. And be sure to get on the list and follow the boys on social media at Killed by Desk. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help us out with some gas money and to get us to the next show? We have merch and more at KilledByDesk.com. 